Welcome to Working History, a podcast on the New Books Network channel, New Books in the American South. Working History is a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Learn more and become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with Mary Stanton, author of books including From Selma to Sorrow, The Life and Death of Viola Liuzzo, and Freedom Walk, Mississippi or Bust. Today we're discussing her most recent book, Red, Black, White, The Alabama Communist Party, 1930 to 1950, published by the University of Georgia Press. Mary Stanton, welcome to Working History. Thank you. So your book is one of the first since Robin D.G. Kelly's groundbreaking Hammer and Ho to focus on the Communist Party in the Great Depression South. And your analysis does a number of things that his doesn't. Um, you know, one thing, for instance, is that you, you know, you extend into the post-war period. And if you could just start us off by telling us what brought you to write the book. Sure, I'd be happy to. In 2010, I began with a biography of a woman by the name of Dr. Olive Matthews Stone, and she was dean of Huntington College in Montgomery, Alabama, Mm -hmm. and she got herself a grant from the TVA to study black sharecroppers in 1935 in Tallapoosa County, and I read the paper that she wrote and decided that that was a story I might want to tell. Mm -hmm. And she was an activist in her own right and a leader of a lot of uh, very small progressive organization in Montgomery. There weren't very many white progressives in Montgomery in 1935. They included the local rabbi and some uh, teachers and uh, social workers. And during her research on uh, sharecroppers, she met with a young man from New York City called Sid Benson. Mm-hmm. He was uh, a member of the Communist Party who had been sent down to Birmingham in 1931. And he was trying to organize black sharecroppers. So they, they immediately had an affinity and had very many uh, similar interests. And she invited him to come to a Norman Thomas study club meeting. And he did. And the club embraced him. The the uh, progressives down there, and they openly uh, supported the Scottsboro Defense Committee and the work that the communist were, young Communist Party, uh, District 17, was doing up in Birmingham. Mm-hmm. So Dr. Stone actually introduced me to District 17 and to Sid Benson. Okay. And um, this collection of odd alliances, which we can get into, uh, that really made up District 17. So I try to recast the the material through Dr. Stone's eyes telling us that her story and, but the Reds demanded the whole stage and it was never going to happen. It was never going to be Dr. Stone's story, perhaps rightly so. And so at that point, Dr. Stone's story ended. That was after four years of work on that biography and the uh, District 17 story began. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So to start us off with that background, that's a really interesting segue to into the work, um, you know, sort of finding and in, in, in some ways, that's what the historians do. They find a nugget and then they follow it. And this amazing story comes out. Could you give us for our listeners who might not be familiar with the Communist Party in the United States in this moment, could you give us a, a just a real quick primer to sort of orient us to the Communist Party and then related how it came to have its presence in the Great Depression South? Sure. 
Well, you know, the Russian Revolution that overthrew the Tsar was in 1917. Mm -hmm. And Bolsheviks, of course, won. And in the United States, two parties were organized, the Communist Party and the Communist Labor Party. Um, one was essentially uh, more socialist and the other was more revolutionary. Mm -hmm. But in 1921, they merged and uh, concentrated mostly on labor organizing in the North and the protection of political uh, prisoners and immigrants. All of that work was basically done um, in the, the north of this country. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, uh, the party, international party, became interested in the plight of black people in South Africa under the system of apartheid. And they saw parallels with the South in the United States with segregation. Mm -hmm. Began to concentrate a bit on what could be done in the South. Mm -hmm. And things really came to a head, although we're, there was some little presence in 1929 uh, in Alabama. District 17 was actually organized in 1931, and I think as a direct uh, response to the Scottsboro Boys incident. Mm -hmm. Could you, again, just very quickly give a little bit of background to what that was about? Sure. It was um, seven young men, black men, riding in a um, freight car uh, from Scottsboro, uh, from Chattanooga, there was um, a fight broke out on the freight train between this group of black young men and a group of white young men who wanted to take over that freight car. Mm -hmm. It was during the Depression. Everybody was going somewhere to try to find a job. The freight train was on its way to Memphis that may, in fact, have been their uh, destination. And the train was stopped in Paint Rock, Alabama, and the nine young men were taken out, as were um, a couple of the white men involved in the fight, and two young white women who had been um, also on the freight train. Now, they had been engaged in prostitution in Chattanooga, and they were terrified that if they were arrested, uh, they would spend time in jail. Mm -hmm. So the uh, sheriff who, you know, was interested in, in arresting these nine young men said to the young women, were you attacked by the, these young men? Well, the first woman who was on probation said yes. And she was the older and she said, uh, and yes, indeed, we were. She was afraid of going back to jail. And the, the younger one, Ruby Bates, agreed with her. Mm -hmm. Make a very long story short. They insisted that they were uh, raped by these young black men. The, ol the oldest of the boys was 21 and the youngest was 14. Mm -hmm. And for the next 50 years, there were a series of Scottsboro trials. They were always, um, and retrials, and they were always found guilty. The young women were believed because in the South at that time, uh, a, a white woman accusing a black man of rape or even of accosting her or even of insulting her was always believed. And these two young women were not, you know, paragons of virtue and they were believed uh, anyway. And there was very, very little evidence that this ever happened. It, mm -hmm. it did not happen. And it became a, a, a cause celeb in, uh, in the South and the uh, Communist Party took it as a cause celeb to defend these young men. And District 17 was founded in uh, 
Birmingham initially to support the cause. Mm-hmm. Where was the Communist Party, and and when we talk about District 17 specifically in Alabama, most active in terms of the work that it did beyond the work related to the Scottsboro case? What kinds of activities were being undertaken at the at the local level, and what were the connections that were being made between racial, economic, and social justice? As I said, 1931, it was established in the city of Birmingham. Mm-hmm which was called the Pittsburgh of the South. It was in a very industrial uh, city, heavily um, funded by uh, Northern industry. And in 1931, their assignment was to organize steel workers, miners, manufacturing and mill workers. Mm-hmm. But what happened was they ended up coming as the Great Depression was, the curtain was coming down on Alabama. Mm-hmm. And what they ended up doing, rather than recruiting um, workers, was that they began organizing the unemployed. Mm -hmm. And uh, the assignment then was to organize the unemployed. But the Central Committee, going back to uh, what the international, I I told you that they were interested in the plight of blacks in South Africa Mm -hmm. and the American South. Mm -hmm. The Central uh, Committee of the party had identified American blacks as, quote, a subjugated people, Mm -hmm. nation within a nation, as the blacks in South Africa were. And they believed that blacks, because they were subjugated people, were entitled to secede from the union, if that's what they chose. Mm -hmm. And the party wanted uh, the, the young men and women of District 17 to work in the Black Belt, which was about 35 miles south of Birmingham. It was rich farm country, and most of the people there were sharecroppers, and the majority, vast majority, were black. And so the goal of the party was to encourage uh, these black sharecroppers to form form a Negro Soviet Socialist Republic. Now, why did, why did they choose the South? Because in the North, they couldn't test their theory of self-determination for these black people, because in the, in the South was the only place where it was possible, because in the North, American blacks were pro-integration. Mm. And they were not interested in any way, shape, or form in uh, self-determination or secession. But the, the irony was that neither were the black croppers. Mm-hmm. Some of these uh, young men went in and, and shared the uh, self-determination theory with them, and they were not a bit interested. I mean, for them, it sounded too much like um, segregation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they, what they wanted essentially was a piece of the American dream. They wanted prosperity if it ever returned, because remember we were in the, the middle of the depression at this, at this time. Mm-hmm. And so the young Reds who were down there working with these farmers realized this almost immediately and understood it was never going to happen. But um, headquarters in uh, New York was slow to, to accept it. You know, it was a policy developed in basically in Russia with the international uh, looking at South Africa and seeing parallels with the American South. Mm-hmm. But, but they, weren't, they weren't clear parallels, and uh, it just was not going to happen. But the party kept on, the American party kept on trying to move it until about 1935 when they finally let it go. But this initial friction between the workers in the field and 
headquarters over the issue of getting the self-determination uh, theory going in the black belt became a source of friction between the field and headquarters. And it wasn't always a uh, productive relationship between the two of them. Right. Could you talk a little bit more about something you referenced early on in our conversation about different groups interacting with one another, whether it be the political establishment, whether it be unions. At this community level, um, how is the Communist Party navigating its space in, in Alabama at this time? Okay. Well, District 17 in Birmingham was responsible for Tennessee, Georgia, and the state of Alabama. So they were a very small group initially. And most of the uh, people who agreed to go uh, were from the North, had never been to the South, get Alabama, had never been to the South at all. So they, they get there and they're setting up the district. So many people were unemployed that in all the major cities they were responsible for, Atlanta, Memphis, and Birmingham, you had this flood of unemployed workers going to the city looking for jobs. Farmers who who had gone broke were going into these major cities looking for jobs. And sharecroppers. So you had tons of unemployed. And these young uh, workers organized them into the unemployed councils. And what they did was they led hunger marches. They protested foreclosures and evictions in each of these cities. Uh, They demanded relief from the municipal and state systems, and they turned the utilities back on as as quickly as the uh, utility workers, city workers, could shut them off. In fact, a lot of the miners in Birmingham who were laid off became real experts at turning these uh, electricity and water back on for the unemployed. Mm -hmm. And the atmosphere, and this was what fascinated me, the atmosphere in District 17 I think you can compare it to a firehouse. Now, these were young men and women. The median age was about 24, um, initially white, but within 18 months, they had uh, a larger black contingency uh, than white because it was a depression, I I would uh, guess, uh, an economic depression. You had more and more black unemployed workers and farmers drawn to this movement. Like I said, it worked like a firehouse. It it ran on adrenaline. There were emergencies daily, and they overlapped, and there were crises, and constant violence, if you can imagine that. Mm -hmm. It's just such a dramatic story. People who had never been arrested before were working with people who had been arrested pretty much on a routine basis in their lives, and they all ended up in jail for vagrancy. There was no money for bail. They stayed there. Months, six weeks, some of the the black uh, reds ended up on uh, work details. And they were working with an untrained staff. This had to be your calling if you were going to stay there. And headquarters was not always sympathetic. Headquarters was looking for results. And um, I don't think they really understood at the local level uh, what these people were doing. why they need the help that, that they requested. In many ways, your book is a collective biography of District 17. 
I've seen it described that way in a couple of different places. So I'm wondering if you could talk uh, to us a, a little bit about some of the individuals and events that you highlight in your book that are illustrative of the larger work that was done by District 17, by this this group of devoted folks that you just talked about. And not only the work they did, but sort of, you know, some of the challenges they faced, maybe some of the successes or particular failures they may have had. Just give us a sense of, you know, who these folks were and, um, you know, what kind of key events were, were uh, are, are a part of, of the story of your book. You know, I'd like to stress the point that District 17 was not a white movement. Mm-hmm. It began with a, a lot of white Northerners, that you had men like Al Murphy, uh, who led the Alabama Sharecroppers Union. Mm -hmm. He was a black man raised in uh, Louisiana, who was sent to Russia uh, by the party, who went up the the ladder and became, as I said, a leader uh, in the Alabama Sharecroppers Union. You had Mac Code, Angelo Herndon, who many people have heard of, and Hosea Hudson, who were all organizers, uh, basically organizers of the unemployed. And then you had this incredible mixture of people. You know, I'll give you an example. There's not a whole lot of material on this period Mm -hmm. in depth, Dr. Kelly's book, certainly. But my interest was to try to look at as you say, the lives of the people who were involved. And and the surprise was how many different places they came from and and who they were. I'll give you an example. I was able to contact a man by the name of Jesse Auerbach, who's the son of James Allen, who was editor of The Southern Worker. Mm-hmm. Allen worked from Chattanooga uh, for District 17, publishing the weekly uh, Southern Worker. It was a paper that went all over the South, and it was often read to uh, congregations in black churches. Many of the people could not read. And it was a a paper that really covered news that was not available uh, in the press, even in the national press, but certainly in the regional uh, presses in the South. Mm -hmm. Uh, Greatly beloved so Jesse Orbach was the son of James Allen and Allen's wife, uh, Jesse's mother, Isabel Allen, who um, covered the Scottsboro trials from the point of view. Uh, in many cases, she wrote a lot of articles about the Scottsboro mothers who uh, toured the country uh, defending their sons and raising uh, money for their defense. The Allens were Jews from Philadelphia who had never been South before. But they were second-generation Americans who were themselves working to achieve the American dream. Jim Allen was in graduate school when he joined the party. They were so disturbed by what was going on in the South and so um, receptive to what the party was doing that you know they became movers and shakers in the party. I also talked with people in Montgomery who knew or knew of Jane Speed and her mother, Darley Speed. And these were very different uh, characters. They were homegrown Southern communists. And uh, they were part of the rich uh, Baldwin clan of that city, mm-hmm. owned uh, banks and railroads. I mean, there was a lot of money involved. And so completely different from the Allens. They were essentially white Episcopalians on the same mission. 
And yet the focus that District 17 kept as people came down, worked for the party through 17 and then went off and uh, either went further south, went back up north, but got involved in the international labor defense, which was so critical, so absolutely critical to the work of District 17. The ILD was the uh, legal arm of the party. They provided lawyers. They did um, all of the uh, defense of the Scottsboro Boys through appeals and all the way up to the Supreme Court. And um, they opened an office in Chattanooga, essentially the year after uh, District 17 opened. Mm -hmm. If there were people who were basically responsible for most of the success of the uh, party in Alabama, I would have to say it was the International Labor Defense who really worked tirelessly in defending these young white black women Man, men who got themselves in trouble uh, or were arrested. Vagrancy was the the issue. You, you know, you could always be arrested for vagrancy and sent to a chain gang or sent uh, out of Alabama. And so these were things that these early pioneers really worked with. It was, it's hard to describe the, the level of violence that, that it, absolutely terrifying. More than a few were, were beaten, jailed threatened, sent back north. They were certainly on a mission. Um, mm -hmm. And then finally, I, I spoke with Joseph Lullivelt, who's a uh, former uh, New York Times editor, who turned out to be a friend of Montgomery's rabbi, um, Benjamin Goldstein, who was a member of Olive Stone's uh, Norman Thomas Study Club. And here was a guy also from New York City, uh, the rabbi. And he... Um, became involved with District 17 through meeting Sid Benson, one of the uh, workers who Olive Stone brought to the club. And he became terribly involved in the Scottsboro uh, defense cause and in the work of the organizers of the sharecroppers. And when I say that this group from uh, Montgomery, all-white progressive, uh, supported them. They supported them with money. Uh, they opened up their bank books and they opened up their homes to shelter for the ILD lawyers who came down to work on the Scottsboro case. So you have the very poor, you have the fairly well off, you have white and black, you have social, uh, you know, they used to say of Jane's speech, she put her nail polish on to go to the revolution, but she went <laughs> and, and she did. Mm -hmm. and so the fact that you have these people from so many different walks of life, educated and uneducated, and that they were able to focus, I think, that is what really interested me, that they could do it for so long. Mm -hmm. One can't do that forever, but there was a time, and the time was right, and their work was basically to end racism, to give people an, an opportunity, a leg up, uh, when they organized, you had asked me about their the party's relationship with other unions. Mm -hmm. It was one of competition mm -hmm. because the, uh, the red unions were what they called revolutionary because they organized across racial lines. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, was a, it was a competition. It often got nasty. Uh, traditional unions organized by craft, mm -hmm. the American Federation of Labor. 
you know, they were interested in organizing white and skilled workers, the communists organized across racial lines. They stressed unity within these red unions. For example, you had the United Mine Workers and the Communist Party then began their own National Mine Workers Party. And within the unions themselves, they stressed the unity of black and white, not only to get industrial equality, but social justice. Mm-hmm. And this, so it was, there was this sense of mission, even in the day-to-day activities of uh, labor, trying to negotiate and, and get these benefits. Everything they did seemed to be a movement. Much of that came from the black church, and you carried over some of those traditions of, you know, everything comes from the same source, and we're in it, we're all in it together. And somehow that was able to gel with people of very different backgrounds, and it's really, that's really what interested me in this. And it's a fascinating story. I mean, it's got all elements of a good story. It is really a dramatic story. So as the country shifted more out of the Depression and into World War II and then into the early years of the Cold War, what do we see happening in District 17? And what do we see happening with the organizers and with these very committed Reds, as you're calling them, in this part of the South? Well, the story doesn't get uh, doesn't get a whole lot happier. But as we said, from 29 to 33, uh, they basically organized the unemployed and sharecroppers. And in 1933, you had the National Industrial Recovery Act was passed, and it gave people the right to collective bargaining, protected organizing. And things began to look a little better. Mm-hmm. 1935, you had the pro- the Popular Front, which... The communist American communists began to cooperate with socialists and progressives, other left-leaning organizations, in a in a spirit of of more collegiality, hopefully to to get things done in a way that was less violent, that was more cooperative. And what happened was the communists stopped uh, working with their own unions, mm-hmm. and you had the CIA, the CIO. Pardon me, coming out of the American Federation of Labor, and it was a, a more egalitarian movement and did recruit on uh, an integrated basis. And you had a lot of men who had organized for, and it was mostly men who had organized for uh, the communist unions being hired by the CIO to organize for them. Now, this was very clever on the part of the CIO because the communist organizers had incredible experience. I mean, they knew how to stand up to difficult bosses. Many of them spoke a few languages. They knew how to run a meeting. They knew how to run an organization. And uh, they knew how to bargain. Mm-hmm. And so the CIO really got uh, a lot of benefit, benefit from the skills that were honed in the early uh, Red Unions. But what happened was the CIO eventually began to tame their militancy. You know, once they got the benefit of the Reds creating sit-down strikes, and the sit-down strike was one of the most successful in the war, uh, the labor wars. The sit-down strike was very, very successful because you didn't have to pick it. You know, if you pick Mm -hmm. it, 
the boss, the picketed the factory or the corporation you worked with, well, all they had to do was lock you out and, you know, and fill the, the organization with uh, strike breakers. But if you sat down and wouldn't get up, all everything stopped. And a sit-down strike was very, very uh, effective, as were wildcat strikes. Mm-hmm. But as the um, goal was to become more able to negotiate, more able to trade one benefit for the other, these things dropped out of the repertoire of the uh, CIO. No more wildcat strikes, no more sit-down strikes. And uh, they were also asked to soft-pedal attacks on racism. And this was probably one of the saddest things that that happened. Many of the the former uh, communist organizers left. But it was the black population in the South who had worked with a Southern communist who felt that they'd really been betrayed. Mm-hmm. That, you know, they thought that the fight against racism, the stand against racism, strong stand, had been bargained away by acceptance by the larger labor community. And that was that was very bitter. And you had the sharecroppers union that had been not terribly successful, but had made a stand in Alabama being absorbed by a CIO uh, union and essentially uh, dying on the vine. So that you had all of this energy and faith and ability to withstand all kinds of abuse coming essentially by after the war, pretty much to naught. And during the war, uh, you had a no-strike policy, no-strike pledge, and the beginning of labor management councils. And so the tide was really going out on radical labor movements. They weren't getting anywhere, and the, the wave was more collaborative, and many argued that rights were being bargained away. Well, the irony of this whole thing is that after the war was over, leftist organizers who were still in the CIO, and there were some but not many, but they were uh, purged, and CIO actually waged war against them. And they, that was the end of uh, that, con- that collaboration. What do you see as the important takeaways from your book and your fresh look at the Communist Party for us to think about as we, as we wrap up our conversation today? All right, and thank you, thank you for the opportunity. I worked on this thing for 10 years, so I had a lot of time to think about it. Sure. And I have four takeaways that I think are relevant. American communism, I, I would say, at least the branch that I studied, I think should be understood as operating within the American radical tradition. Mm-hmm. It's not something foreign. What I I came, I lived with it for heaven's sake, uh, and I see it as American, as revolutionary, and as egalitarian. And that's all within the definition, I believe, of the American radical tradition. Number two, I believe that the Reds in Alabama Uh, specifically, exposed something called systemic racism in the South. Now, we hear about it a lot uh, today, but they really fingered it in the South and broadcast it, demonstrated against it, worked against it. And systemic racism is where institutions that are dedicated to preserving white supremacy at that time 
often acted as a unit more viciously, if one can believe it, than any one individual might. Mm -hmm. So you had the party confronting corporations, heads of corporations, confronting law enforcement, legislating, legislatures, and judicial systems. And they were not afraid to speak out in court, uh, in the press, and, you know, it was a very dangerous thing to do. And they took it on. And I do, uh, in fact, admire that. And thirdly, I think they defined legal lynching. And for them, there were a lot of organizations in the United States that were against lynching, that tried to get a lynch bill, ran anti-lynching crusades. And if we go back to the Scottsboro Boys situation, Alabama was actually proud of the fact that the Scottsboro Boys weren't lynched, that they went through the legal process. They were saying, you know, the South is changing. These boys were not lynched. But they went through almost 50 years of subsequent torture through the legal system. Mm -hmm. uh, And many spent better than 20 years in jail. Well, legal uh, lynching for the Reds was where jurors were willing to accept any evidence or none at all to justify sending blacks to their deaths. So you didn't need a tree and you didn't need a rope. Just folded your arms and you could justify in the courtroom the death penalty. Mm-hmm. And this was distinct from jury nullification. In jury nullification, uh, jurors disregarded any and all evidence uh, in cases of white on black crime and refused to convict. So that was sort of the inverse. And finally, I think that a takeaway should be a look at the, these young communists demonstrated the power of mass protest. Mm-hmm. with help of the International Labor Defense, with the help of the American Party. They really raised hell. That was their defense. If you had a um, cause that was not working out, they always believed if they could get to the American people through uh, demonstrations, through the press, that they might be able to get a, a decent hearing of the issue. And still, we look to the power of the press to help through the difficult times. Mm -hmm. and to change minds and and change directions in American society. And I think these four are all really valuable accomplishments. They've spilled into the 21st century. They're the basis of some of the justice we're still trying to uh, accomplish. It's It's an amazing story of where these people came from, how they put this party together, who was involved, and what they've given us. All right. Well, Mary Stanton, thank you so much for sharing uh, a little bit about your book. And hopefully folks will pick it up and and give it a read because it really is a very compelling story, as you've said. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Working History. Appreciate it. Thanks again to Mary Stanton for joining us to discuss her book, Red, Black, White. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, a podcast on the New Books Network produced by the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member of SLSA online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History. Working History.